Gospel of John, chapter 2, verse 1. On the third day, there was a wedding at Cana in Galilee, and the mother of Jesus was there. Jesus also was invited to the wedding with his disciples. When the wine ran out, the mother of Jesus said to him, They have no wine. And Jesus said to her, Woman, what does this have to do with me? My hour has not yet come. His mother said to the servants, Do whatever he tells you. Now there were six stone water jars, therefore the Jewish rites of purification, each holding 20 or 30 gallons. Jesus said to the servants, Fill the jars with water, and they filled them to the brim. And he said to them, Now draw some out and take it to the master of the feast. So they took it. When the master of the feast tasted the water, now become wine, and did not know where it came from, though the servants who had drawn the water knew, the master of the feast called the bridegroom and said to him everyone serves the good wine first when people have drunk freely then the poor wine you have kept the good wine until now this the first of his signs Jesus did at Cana in Galilee and manifested his glory and his disciples believed in him after this he went down to Capernaum with his mother and his brothers and his disciples and they stayed there for a, a few days once again spirit we're asking that you teach us guide us inspire our minds and hearts in this passage god amen so as i mentioned earlier this is the first miracle of jesus that the apostle john records in in his writing here and it's very interesting that the first miracle that Jesus selects in the sovereignty of God is this wedding feast and this wedding of this man and this woman and the celebration that takes place there he has this as the first miracle it's recorded in John so as we come to the passage we need to think back just a little bit about how important it is the relationship between a man and a woman and their marriage and, and that celebration, how important that really is. Just briefly, I'll mention in Genesis that two shall become one flesh. We come to the, the book of Hosea. The entire book of Hosea, the minor prophet, not minor in the message, just a, sh a shorter length than the, the major, what they're called the major prophets. The whole book of Hosea is about unfaithfulness. Read there, of course, it's the unfaithfulness of Israel to God, but they're using the, the picture of marriage. You come to Ephesians. The Apostle Paul refers back to the Genesis passage, but it says, Husbands, love your wives as... Christ loved the church. And in that Ephesians passage, the Apostle Paul says that these things between a man and a woman in their marriage, it's a mystery. But sure enough, it refers to Christ and His church. It's pointing. It's in some 
way, spiritual way to Christ and His church and God and His church. We continue through the Bible and all the way, all the way in the final book, the book of Revelation, chapter 19. All of this has taken place in Revelation. All these judgments and all of this. Here in the, in the the chapter 19 in the final phase of what's recorded there in the, the book of Revelation is the marriage supper of the Lamb. So it helps us on a passage like this and others to, to recognize how important the, the marriage between a man and a woman, how important that is to God, how God designed that to be, and how important the celebration of it is as well. And what we have here is the celebration. Jesus and His mother being invited to the celebration. And we can, we can recognize how important it is because Jesus is present. <laughs> His mother Mary is present. And apparently, the, the things are such, things are properly in place that Jesus would be there and His mother would be there. And there's this celebration that's going on. On the third day, the passage starts out. That's going back to what is recorded earlier in chapter 1 where G Jesus has this internet action with Nathaniel. And so these days have passed. On the third day, there's this wedding at Canaan in Galilee. And his mother is there. We'll think about that in a, in a few moments. And uh, Jesus is... is, is is teaching us something here in his interaction with his mother. One thing when we're going through the Gospel of John, it's helpful to recognize when John records a, a miracle, he sees it as a sign. He doesn't just park himself with the miracle it's, itself, as wonderful as that is. He's thinking in terms of a sign. The miracle is pointing to something greater. In fact, he uses that in verse 11. This is the first of his signs. So that's what the apostle is, the first of his signs. Now, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, they're looking at the miracles of Jesus. They record it as, as messianic inbreaking. <laughs> that heaven is breaking into this world. But for John, He's very concerned about who Christ is. Who is Jesus Christ? The focus of, of John, and we looked at that prologue, how he lays that, that out. The Word became flesh. He's very concerned about us, his readers, identifying this is who Jesus is. Now that's important for the other Gospel writers too, but it's just a distinction that helps us with Matthew, Mark, and Luke. They're, they're, they're saying the kingdom has there's an inbreaking into this this world that we're we are in and so he speaks of a of a sign and he's at this wedding well there's two things that are taking place here that the apostles tells us very plainly that's at stake very plainly this this sign has two purposes and one in verse uh, 11 is so that the, the glory of Jesus would be, the word in the ESV is manifested. It would be displayed. That, that the, 
the glory, the, the, the messianic power, the eternal deity, that that would be put on display. And then the other one is, his disciples believed. So to convince his disciples, this is who he is. Remember, he's calling them, those disciples, who saw Andrew and Peter and Nathaniel and John him, himself, Philip, they're, they're coming. And then there's the others that were likely, not mentioned, but likely with Jesus. There's some others that are, that are coming along. And they're, they're thinking, we found the Messiah. We found a Messiah. And there's some convincing that needs to be done. And changing water to wine is a good way to do that. So convincing. And that is what John says. And his disciples believed. And so there's these two primary purposes that are in place and are at stake. So that really has to guide our thinking. That's what the, what's on the, the mind of the Apostle John is that the, the glory of Jesus, the deity, when glory mean, meaning completely different, completely unique, the, the deity of Jesus Christ, fully human, fully God, but there it is on display. And then so that others would believe. Because there's some other things we observe in the passage, but we want to keep that as primary. That's the primary governing the purposes of what's going on here in this passage. Now, it's interesting thing that, that we can see in this particular 12 verse, this particular miracle that takes place, is that this is an immediate miracle and not a long-term process. Anyone have any problems with creation? The doctrine of creation? Or are you just locked into evolution? Why, if you buy into water being turned to wine, there's no talk of any aging going on here. There's, there's, there's the grapes and there's the vines, there's the earth, there's the water, there's the harvesting. There's none of that. If God, Jesus Christ, wills something to happen, by the way, there's no record that He touched the water. There's, there's no record that He took a staff, kind of like Moses, and touched the water in the pots. If God wills something to be done, immediacy. Ex nihilo for the theologians. Immediate. Immediate creation. And that is what we believe happens in Genesis. God says, let there be light. There is light. So this passage reinforces our understanding of the Genesis account that if it's God's will, He has no problem changing the order of, of nature or bringing things into being in nature. So this is an immediate, immediate happening and it's not a long, long-term process. One other thing as we get going and we pick up some speed here in verse 11, the Apostle John himself says, what's the third word? Could I have some interaction? What is the third word in the ESV? First. First. 
you are absolutely correct. This is the first of his signs. So those supposed gospels that the intellectuals around the world throw out there and say, aha, look here. Here's a, here's a recording, here's a record of the life of Jesus. And look at his childhood. And when, it is very, when he was very young, Jesus was doing these miracles that Jesus, not according to the Apostle John, this is the first of his miracles, which rules out anything in, in some sort of sensationalistic gospel that is not in supposed gospel writing that is not in our Bible rules that out of place altogether. So it's an immediate pr process that, that takes place. Now, there's these elements to this story that we see. We see the stone water jars. John tells us they're there for the Jewish rite of purification. Okay. And th there's six of these. And he says 20 or 30 gallons. That's a lot of water. Purification. Well, the purification rituals, of course, were very important in ancient Judaism. But a wedding celebration at this time could very well last a week. A week, week in length, have the guests over and, and stay for a week, and there would be this kind of washing, and this kind of washing, and this kind of washing, and they could go through a, a, a lot, a lot of water. But the Apostle John is making note of this one. These are stone, stone water jars, which it, are the jars, the pots that were used for religious purification purposes rather than pottery rather than some other kind of earthenware vessel that could be defiled somehow it wouldn't be appropriate for uh, this kind of a ceremony it wouldn't be appropriate for religious purification John is specifically mentioning these jars and their significance regarding the Jewish rite of purification that tips us off to something. Now when we read John, we see a passage like this and others. John has what is in his writings, these pre presentation here. But within his miracles, it's almost like the Apostle John is he's bringing another sermon. He's, bringing, he's using the miracle, but there's something else here going on. John has kind of the second level that's going on, is operating. And so obviously he's mentioning the, the, the water jars through there, but why? And he's saying, for the Jewish rite of purification, why? Why would he need to even say that? Well, it seems to be that there's something else operating within John's writing. And as we go through the gospel, we'll think about that and it'll become more and more clear that John presents something and it's just not, it's just not a blind man receiving sight. Something else is going on spiritual. John is communicating something else to us, spiritual blindness, 
and spiritual awakening that comes only through Christ. So we have that. Those jars are there. Then we have this huge, huge volume of wine, an enormous amount of wine there. And that also suggests to us something else, and we'll take a look at that in, in just a moment. But one of the most striking things for me is this, this use of the word woman. And anybody in common habit of referring to your mother, speaking to your mother like that? Not saying that it might not have happened some, at some point in some day of highly charged activity. <laughs> but Jesus says, woman, what does this have to do with me? I don't think he said it quite like that. The English language doesn't quite capture what's going on here with that. Jesus is very respectful. It sounds disrespectful to refer to your mother that way. But it is very respectful. Some of the commentators say that, well, maybe the word lady captures the sense of it. Or even ma'am. Ma'am, what does this have to do with me? And what Jesus is signaling here is that there's a change in the relationship between the mother and the son. We don't have a record of Joseph being around here. There are some other brothers uh, that Jesus has, half-brothers. Sons of Mary and Joseph. But Jesus is the eldest. And it's not unreasonable to think that during his, the course of his life that his mother, assuming there that surely Joseph has died at some point, she has become dependent upon him. So there's this urgency that's taken place. And she comes to him to deal with this problem. The mother-son relate as the eldest son. Can you can you deal with this problem? Apparently, Mary has some sort of family connection. Jesus too. Jesus and Mary were not wealthy. They're, this family that's having this ceremony probably were not wealthy. May have been poor. And perhaps purchased enough wine for the celebration, and then perhaps some new guests came in, some guests from Bethsaida or somewhere like that. Uh, some people from, may, perhaps had come in here, but anyway, they ran out and they turned to, Mary somehow knows about this and somehow she's helping and she, somehow she feels free to go to Jesus. There may be some kind of family connection here. The reason Jesus is here, the reason he was invited, the reason Mary is invited, she may be feeling, is feeling some responsibility. She goes to her son. They have this enormous problem. They've run out of wine. Now, in the ancient world, that was, a, that was a very serious problem. This is no minor problem. Major problem. During the, the marriage ceremony, uh, the groom was responsible for all the provisions. 
making sure everything's taken care of for a week. Okay, guys, for a week, making sure everything's taken care of, but whoever might come, that the guests would be there. It's a sign of hospitality. So, he, so here's the, the families of coming. The bride's family is coming. And you have, and what? You, you, you've run out of wine? Might say food, but wine? You, you've run out of wine? Well, see, in the Bible, wine is a symbol of joy. So in ancient Judaism, they, they would see wine as, if you ran out of wine, then our, you've run out of joy. Not only, so what this is saying, this action is saying, you're not going to have, we're not going to have joy, and I have joy, and I, in the best sense of the word, joy in this wedding uh, celebration. You're not going to have joy in your, your marriage. And for that matter of fact, you're, it's communicating that neither of the families are going to have any joy either. What is going on here? This is entirely an insult. We're not going to put up with this. You may think that's an over-exaggeration, over but some of the historians tell us that the groom could actually be legally liable in some cases for running out of the provisions for this celebration, for running out of wine. It was that significant that big of an issue in that culture, it's a big issue. When, when Mary comes to Jesus, they've run out of wine. And he, he says, ma'am, what does this have to do with me? My time has not yet come. My hour has not yet come. The hour in which my new wine will be poured out, that hour hadn't come. The cross has not come. The crucifixion hasn't come. The resurrection hasn't come. The new wine, that hour hadn't come. What's, it, what's this got to do with me? The point I'm making here is Jesus is putting distance between Him and His mother. It's not that he does not no longer love her. Doesn't mean that he doesn't like her. They will no longer be interacting as mother-son. Woman, lady, ma'am. We will be interacting with me as your Messiah. Your requests will be coming to me as Messiah and not as son who has in, in where you have an inside track so the, so the son will somehow answer your requests. Have the picture? Now this is very important. It's very important for those who over the centuries, over time, even today, 
would look at this path, even this passage right here that we're looking at, and they would see this as evidence that a person needs to come to Mary first, and then Mary will request that the make the request to Jesus. The way you can see here that Mary is Jesus is performing this task on the basis of Mary's request, fulfilling it. So therefore. Mary will be our mediatrix. That's not what's being communicated. If everyone who came to Jesus and had their request answered, what, if we're going to use that standard, then we could, we could just look at those people who came to Jesus, they had some sort of request, and He answered the request for them, why they could be a mediatrix or mediator. That doesn't work, but this passage is one that's looked upon as, see here, Mary came, Jesus fulfills the request, doctrine of praying to Mary. No, no, no. He's putting distance between His mother, a very important feature of this passage. What do we see about Jesus? Well, He's willing to help. He's willing to help in the context of fulfilling His purpose. And His purpose, God's purpose, is to bring glory to Himself. It's not to put His messianic powers on display for everyone that they can gather around and revel over. He is willing to help. He's willing to help you, friend. He's willing to, to help His people. Those who believed in His name, He gave the right to become children of God. He's willing to help those who call upon Him, but He's willing to help only at the point of fulfilling His purpose and bringing Him glory so you and I can quit asking Jesus to do something in our life that does not in any way match up with God's purposes. We need to know what God's purposes is. That'd be helpful. Jesus is all about helping, but there's going to be a purpose. It's going to fulfill a particular function. His, his disciples are going to believe, and it displays His, his glory to that group of disciples. Because remember, the, the master of the feast comes out there, and, and they tasted the water. He didn't know where it came from. John's telling us in that phase that Jesus didn't just walk out and say, hey, I just turned it into wine. And, and the disciples didn't run out there and say, hey, you ought to see what's going on in the back room over there. They didn't know. Wasn't the hour yet. But Jesus is really willing to help. But it's to fulfill His, it's fulfill His purpose. Now He's willing to help in ways that we might not expect. Now, here's these six stone jars used for purification. He, he tells the servants to fill, fill them to the brim. Can you imagine how much wine is in six jars, and the apostle tells us the 20 or 30 gallons. <laughs> what the apostle John is saying, I don't know, they're big ones. You know how much wine that is? 
an enormous amount of wine for this wedding party who very likely were, were poor. They weren't royalty. Jesus is providing so much wine that they will have wine left over and no one has tasted anything like this wine before. This is completely different. This kind of wine, woo, no one's heard. Word's going to spread fast. You ought to have tasted what they have. Happens to be they have, okay, they have some left on hand. They have some left on hand which will help their poverty situation. Jesus is willing to help. So here we are. Jesus changing water to, to wine, and we that's an important feature of this, this celebration. And, and we need to think about this just for a moment before we move on. We need to think about what's going on here with this wine. Why Jesus changed water into wine. I guess I can do what I want. Jesus did it. In the ancient world, wine in its undiluted, undiluted sense was considered strong drink. And the Bible has something to say about consuming strong drink. And it was, it was diluted such that it would just take a whole lot of consumption. A whole lot of consumption to get drunk. Uh, the, the, the ancient people, they used it for purification purposes. They had, they had wine, diluted wine, breakfast, lunch, and dinner. They didn't have the purification. Of, they didn't have water like we have today. And so they would, they would mix it for have something to drink in the ancient world. But the Bible speaks specifically about drunkenness well. Warren Wiersbe has an interesting section speaking about this issue. I thought I'd just read it to you. Read what Wiersbe says. Wine was the normal drink of the people in the day. And we must not use this miracle as an argument for the use of alcoholic beverages today. A man given to drink once said to me, after all, Jesus turned water into wine. My reply was, if you use Jesus as your example for drinking, why don't you follow his example in everything else? Then I read Luke 22:18 to him. This verse clearly states that in heaven, now, Jesus is a teetotaler. Sincere Christians of our day consider such verses as 1 Corinthians 8, 9, 1 Corinthians 10, 23, 1 Corinthians 10, 31, before concluding that the use of alcoholic beverages is a wise thing today. The verse there in Luke 22, 18 says this, you'll remember it from the Last Supper. Jesus says, For I tell you that from now on I will not drink of the fruit of the vine until the kingdom of God comes. That's the passage Wiersbe is referring to. So he concludes 
his comments, Wearsby does, by saying, finally, it is worth noting that the Jews always diluted the wine with water, usually to the proportion of three parts water to one part wine. While the Bible does not command total abstinence, it certainly magnifies it, and it definitely warns against drunkenness. Wearsby's comment on the wine and being cautious about employing this text for excesses in someone's personal life. So, this wine that Jesus is, is providing to this, to this group is, is the kind of wine that no one is. It's just exceptional. Exceptional. What he's doing here, one of the things we can take away is that this, this wine, this water in these pots was transformative. Fully transformative. He, how, how do we know? The word brim. It says Jesus tells them, He commands them, fill them to the brim. Jesus is not adding any food coloring to it. He's not putting any additives to it. He's not putting anything else into it. He's not mixing it with some other, other liquid to make something. It's filled to the brim. Fill, fill it to the brim. There's no additives. Jesus is about transformation. He, cha he transforms something. He doesn't add to it. You come to Jesus, Christian, as your Lord and Savior. You come to Jesus... His promise to you is transformation, not adding to what you are, transforming you completely. And here in this picture of water to wine, we see complete transformation, lasting, permanent transformation. All of the, the Jewish religious purification rituals, fill it up. Something new has arrived. Something new has arrived. And the illustration of it is the purification pots for Judaism and the religious rituals. So, Jesus brings something that is greater and more satisfying. The master of the feast, probably an honored guest, is, is given a taste. So they took it to whoever this, this honorary guest was, perhaps a family member. Then the master of the feast tasted the water and it became wine and didn't know where it came from, although the servants knew. The master of the feast called the bridegroom. Everyone serves the good wine first. People drink it freely, then the poor wine, but you have kept the good wine. This is the good wine. The wine Jesus produces. You've kept the good wine until now. This is something greater. This is something greater than what was in place at the beginning of this ceremony. Now, who does that? Because 
People commonly in the ancient world would, would serve what was best first before the, the taste buds had changed in the people that were drinking it so that their sensitivity had changed. They would serve that first and then they would serve the lesser quality later when the sensitivity and taste was not there. But wait a minute, bridegroom. You didn't do that. You'd save the best for last with the sensitivity gone from our mouth that you, you, have, you have brought this here and all of the joy that, that that brings. What a wonderful, what a wonderful thing. Something much greater you've given. Jesus. When we identify with Jesus, he provides something greater, that greater than what the world can provide. What the world provides surely will run out. The satisfaction of what the world offers will surely run out. Jesus, right, comes in on the scene and what Jesus provides is greater than anyone could have imagined and it is much, much more satisfying than what the world offers. Yeah. Jesus provides in abundance. The message of John, the Apostle John, is that Jesus comes, Jesus replaces something. He replaces those pots. He replaces something. And in what Jesus offers, there's enormous abundance. There's more than you, there's more than what you what you need. There's an abundance. But it's according to his purpose, according to his character, according to his mission. He's going to transform things. He's going to transform you. He's going to transform me. He'll transform anyone that will allow him to transform them. No matter what attitudes they might have had prior. Not no matter what prejudices they might have had prior, they come to Jesus. That's the first step. And He changes. Transform. Some people in the place you're going, brother, will need to hear that. He's not in the business of adding. He's in the business of transforming. So, these ancient weddings, Ancient Hebrew weddings. What do we know about those, those weddings? Well, there's a lot to know about it. It'd be worth, it's worth our own personal time to study these weddings, but they were prearranged. They're prearranged activities with the groom actively initiating. Sound familiar? Prearranged. Prearranged. In some cultures in the world today, that still takes place. There's a prearrangement that goes on between the families, and the groom is involved with it, and the groom was involved in the initiation of it. And uh, why? Why? It's almost as like the families would have elected, elected the daughter, the woman, and the man to be together. And it's, it's almost as if like the man stepped up and initiated that situation coming into this world and redeeming those who the Father gave to him. And promising never to let go any of those that the Father had given him. Matthew eleven twenty eight 28-30. Come to me, all who are 
all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly of heart. You will find rest for your souls, for my yoke is easy and my burden is light. John 6, 37 to 38. For all that the Father gives me will come to me, and who at all that the Father gives me will come to me. And whoever comes to me, I will never cast out. For I have come down from heaven not to do my own will, but the will of Him who sent me. Yeah, we see in the picture of the wedding from Genesis all the way to Revelation. We, we, we see something in, in marriage and in the wedding, the celebration of it, something that points us to the reality, as Paul would say in Ephesians, this is a mystery, but it has to do with the church, the people of God. There, in these ancient weddings, there was a price that was paid, the bride price. Again, many cultures in the world kind of adopt this, this view. There's this bride price. There's an agreed upon betrothal price. All kinds of complicated bride prices. Jesus paid the price for you. He paid the price for His bride, who is the church. He pays the bride price. The redemption price that God demands from sinners. He initiates, He pays the price. Now interesting, the, the bride to, to be, they're in this engagement, betrothal period, this, this woman and this man are set apart. That, that betrothal period can last up to a, a year's time, a long extended period of time that they were, they were apart. They were not to be living together. They were apart in their family's home. Why? It, it, it's, almost like, it, it's almost like they were just set apart for some future celebration that was going to take place. And that's exactly what happened. 1 Corinthians 1-2 says, To the church of God that is in Corinth, to those sanctified, set apart, sanctified in Christ Jesus, called to be saints together with all those who in every place call upon the name of the Lord Jesus. The Apostle Paul, speaking to the church in Corinth, using that specific word, we could go to other passages, many. The church called to be set apart, not to be adopting the philosophies and attitudes of the world, not to be golden calf idolaters, not to be accumulating my kingdom, building up my kingdom so I can rise to the heaven, me and my clan and my group. But no, you're set apart for the bride, for the groom. The bride is set apart for the bridegroom. Very interesting. And there's this preparation that's involved that, that, that there's a time that the, the bridegroom goes away. He goes away during this betrothal period. 
And he prepares this place that he and his bride will live. That place. He, he goes away to prepare that. that. That beautiful love that's taken place. He's preparing the place to, for them to live their future. Listen to John chapter 14, verses 2 and 3. In my Father's house are many rooms. If it were not so, I would have told you, I go to prepare a place for you. And if I go and I prepare a place for you, I will come again and take you to myself, that where I am, you may be also. Jesus, the bridegroom, coming for his bride. Acts chapter 1, verse 9 through 11. And when he had said these things, as they were looking on, he was lifted up and a cloud took him out of their sight. And while they were gazing into heaven, as he went, behold, two men stood by them in white robes and said, Men of Galilee, why do you stand looking into heaven? This Jesus, who was taken up, into, taken up from you into heaven, will come the same way as you saw him go to heaven. God uses the love between a man and a woman and, and use, uses His ordained marital relationship ceremony and that relationship on this earth and the, the, their future, what the future holds for them as a picture, as a picture of Him, the Heavenly Father, the Bridegroom coming, Preparing His church. Calling out those that the Father has given to Him. And He promises to come. In, in this betrothal period, He's preparing a place. A wonderful, beautiful place. Whatever that could be. Preparing that for us. Well, during this time, there's this, this, this betrothal period. That's, it's really a loyalty test. It's a time when the loyalty of the bride is tested. It's a time when the loyalty of the bridegroom is tested as well. Did he really mean what he said? Did she really mean what she said? 2 Corinthians chapter 11, verses 2 to 4. Apostle Paul writing, For I feel a divine jealousy for you, since I betrothed you to one husband, Jesus. He's the apostle, betrothing them to one husband. To present you as a pure virgin to Christ, but I'm afraid that as the serpent deceived Eve by his cunning, your thoughts will be led astray from a sincere and pure devotion to Christ. 
For if someone comes and proclaims another Jesus than the one we proclaimed, or if you receive a different spirit from the one that you received, or if you accept a different gospel from the one that you accepted, you put up with it readily enough. Loyalty test during the betrothal period. There's also this picture, this collection. The, the, the bridegroom comes, he's got his buddies with him. Bridegroom comes, make a lot of noise. The time has arrived. The time has arrived, making a lot of noise. Coming and, and coming for the bride. 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, verses 16 to 17. For the Lord himself would descend from heaven with a cry of command, with the voice of an archangel, and with the sound of the trumpet of God. A big noise. At an unknown time, by the way. Bridegroom, nobody knew when the bridegroom actually was really going to show up. It was a mystery. And the dead in Christ will rise first, and then also we who are alive and are, who are left will be caught up together and with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. And so we will always be with the Lord. And as I mentioned earlier, finally there's this great wedding feast, this great celebration. Enormous celebration. Very happy in these villages. People would look to it. It's probably the high point of the whole year in this village. This great celebration. People would come together. And whoever could come would make it here. Jesus is at, at this celebration. Mary is at this celebration. Whoever would come to this, this village, they would just celebrate. And they would wonder in what God had put together between this man and this woman. Revelation chapter 19. End of the book. Not the final chapter, but close. Revelation chapter 19, verses 6 to 9. And then I heard what seemed to be the voice of a great multitude, like the roar of many waters and like the sound of mighty peals of thunder crying out, Hallelujah! For the Lord our God, the Almighty reigns. Let us rejoice and exult and give Him the glory. For the marriage of the Lamb has come and the bride has made herself ready. It was granted her to clothe herself with fine linen, bright and pure. For the fine linen is the righteous deeds of the saints. And the angel said to me, write this. Blessed are those who are invited to the marriage supper of the Lamb. So, the Apostle John is recording this first miracle of Jesus. So Jesus is here, but it's, it's with meaning. It's not merely just changing water to wine. It's loaded with meaning. And let's, let's not escape this as we conclude. John records this at, as the first sign that Jesus is giving. And the first sign you can always remember that the Apostle John is giving in his gospel is this marriage feast. Therefore, John and Jesus are elevating the great importance of this marriage. It's, it's not a casual thing. 
to the community. It's not a casual thing to Jesus. It's not a casual thing to Mary. It's certainly not a casual thing to God. He's emphasizing the importance of this marriage and, and the picture of marriage. God uses that because cultures throughout the world, all of these centuries, everybody kind of understands <laughs> a man, a woman coming together, the ceremonies around it. Everybody can kind of identify with that, with that picture no matter where you're from, Africa or Asia, South America, North America. All, people kind of can identify, can get that picture, that sweeping picture from Genesis to Revelation. God uses this one, this picture, to give us a message of His great love for you and His willingness to come and die to redeem you and His promise to come get you while He's away preparing a place. Be encouraged. Be encouraged today. Your Lord, if you're trusting Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, has promised to come and gather you together and He's watching over you. Not just simply a philosophical argument. There's depth to what God has for us, not only in the gospel, but in the picture of the wedding feast. Let's all do what we need to do. I know some and many in this room have come to genuine faith in Jesus Christ. I don't know everyone in the room, anyone watching. You may not have come to genuine faith in Jesus Christ. And what we all need to take care of, the business that needs to be taken care of, is to ensure that we're being invited to the marriage feast of the Lamb. We want to make sure that we're there. And I know many of you will be there with me as we celebrate the great joy of abundance that's being poured out for us for eternity. That's not you. If you're not sure about that, let me know. Please let me know. Talk to someone that you know that follows Jesus and come to some understanding about what it means to be a disciple, a true disciple, a Christian. And then let's rest and be confident and move forward in what's in store for us in the age to come.